morning. Welcome back to season two of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we tackle director Satoshi Kon's family-friendly kinda holiday flick about homelessness, Tokyo Godfathers. Human Instrumentality Podcast, season two, episode five, rolling. Tokyo Godfathers opens on Christmas Eve in Tokyo, where else? Where two homeless folks are watching a nativity play. One is Gin, a middle-aged man who is only attending the play and accompanying sermon to get food from the soup line afterward. His partner, though, a trans woman named Hana, is a devout Christian who longs to be a mother and relates deeply to the story of the Virgin Mary. The two bring soup back to their surrogate daughter, a teenage runaway named Miyuki. The three together are a loving but dysfunctional trio prone to argument. While eating, Hana says that she also has a Christmas present for Miyuki, a book of literature. But to find it, they need to search through a trash pile. They don't find the book, though. Instead, they find an abandoned infant along with a locker key. Hana sees the baby as a gift from God and names her Kyoko. While Miyuki buys water for the baby's feed, Gin admits he was once a parent. He goes on to tell the story of how he became homeless when he was once a professional bicycle racer. He conspired to throw a race for money to afford medical care for his sick infant daughter, but things didn't go according to plan. He was found out and banned from the sport. As a result, his daughter and later his wife passed away. The next day, Hana doesn't want to give the baby up. She never knew her birth mother and was lost in the foster system. She doesn't want that for Kyoko. Therefore, the Tokyo Godfathers decide to find Kyoko's birth mother and discover why she abandoned her baby. They begin by finding the locker that matches Kyoko's key and inspect its contents. The locker includes a photo of what presumably are Kyoko's parents, and luggage for a tropical vacation, as well as some business cards for a nightclub, Club Swirl, which the Tokyo Godfathers then try to visit. Unfortunately, while on the train there, Miyuki spies a man that she recognizes in a neighboring train. The man sees Miyuki also. The teen then jumps out of the window, and her surrogate parents have no choice but to follow her. Hoofing it through the snow, the Godfathers go to a cemetery to find food among offerings to the dead, and then stumble upon a man pinned to the ground and slowly being run over by his own car. The Godfathers help the man, a Yakuza boss, back on his feet. The grateful Yakuza gives the Godfathers some cash and a business card, which makes Gin anxious. As it turns out, the Yakuza's daughter is marrying the owner of Club Swirl that very day, and he gives them a lift to the incredibly upscale reception. There, the groom tells Hana that the baby's mother is a former bar girl, Sachiko, who quit when she got pregnant. Gin knows the groom, too. He's the guy who tried to get him to throw the bicycle race years ago. Before Gin can clobber him, the groom is shot by one of the maids, who is a cross-dressing assassin what what the assassin whose true target was the yakuza that the godfather saved and who only speaks spanish takes miyuki and kyoko as hostages and escapes with them in a taxi 
Without Miyuki around, Gin and Hana descend into squabbling and go their separate ways. Miserable and drunk, Gin finds an elderly homeless man dying in the street. Gin tries to care for him, but the old man passes away in Gin's shack, just after bequeathing him a mysterious red sack. Gin also recognizes a building from the background of the photo of Kyoko's parents in another photo tacked to the outside of his shack. At last, he has a clue to their whereabouts. Just then, a crew of thugs arrive to beat Gin up for New Year's cleaning. They beat him with a pipe and desecrate the old man's corpse. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> this movie's so fucking dark. Meanwhile, at the assassin's home, Miyuki gets on well with the assassin's wife, despite the language barrier between them. Maybe for that reason, Miyuki admits why she ran away from home. She had stabbed her father, a police officer, after an argument over her missing and presumably dead cat, Angel. Less excitedly, Hana grabs a taxi to the assassin's crib. Together, she and Miyuki search for Gin but cannot find him. So they go to Angel Tower, a drag bar where Hana once worked. There, Hana reunites with her old mother figure. Gin has been taken there as well by one of Hana's co-workers dressed as what else? An angel. Hana tells the story of how she became homeless. She assaulted a rude customer for misgendering her at the bar, then ran away in shame. Hana then finds a scrap of paper in Gin's clothes, which reveals the probable location of Kyoko's parents, a house near the apartment towers that Gin recognized in the photo. When they get to the house, though, it's been demolished by developers. A neighbor provides a clue to Kyoko's past. Her father was a gambling addict who lost the house, and her mother was a club girl working off his debts which prompts Gin to admit that he was more of a gambling addict than a professional racer. Then Hana finds the next clue to the parents' possible whereabouts in the rubble, an address written on a calendar. At the same time, Miyuki finds a classified ad intended for her from her dad, telling her Angel has come home. That ad inspires her to call her parents. While she does, Gin admits his previous backstory was a lie. In reality, he was just a gambling addict, and both his daughter and wife are alive. He's been saving up money to give to his daughter. He winds up spending that money on a hospital visit for Hana, who has passed out from coughing up blood? It turns out that a nurse at the hospital, though, is Gin's daughter, who is alive and well and somehow also named Kyoko. <laughs> Adult Kyoko tells Gin that the man he owes money to was shot, but lived, and, by the way, adult Kyoko is engaged to be married to the doctor that has been caring for Hana. When she finds this out, Hana loses it and berates Gin for his lies, then storms out with Miyuki and the wee baby Kyoko. Later at the hospital, Gin sees a news report indicating that wee baby Kyoko was, in fact, stolen from the hospital just after being born. At that same time, Hana and Miyuki find Sachiko, who, remember at this point in time, they still think is Kyoko's birth mother, planning to jump off of a bridge. 
They stop her, but Sachiko tells them that her husband gave Kyoko away without her knowledge, and so Hana gives her the baby. Gin, though, has followed the address they found to Sachiko's husband, who confirms the news report. Kyoko's not their baby, and Sachiko kidnapped her from the hospital. Gin then catches up with Hana and Miyuki, and instigates a wild chase with Sachiko involving stolen cars, the taxi driver from earlier, and a mad dash to the roof of an apartment building. On the roof, Sachiko admits that her baby was stillborn, and she only got pregnant to try and fix her marriage. And as it turns out, her ex-husband's new apartment is literally across the street. Sachiko tries to jump, but Miyuki catches her, then slides off herself. Gin catches her, but Sachiko drops the baby, and Hana selflessly leaps off the building to try and save her. All seems lost until a miraculous wind lifts Hana into the air and deposits her and the baby safely on the street. Kyoko is returned to her parents, and the Tokyo Godfathers are suddenly rich, since the old man's sack of goods, as it turns out, contains a winning lottery ticket. Finally, Miyuki is reunited with her father, the inspector on the case of the missing baby. Yay! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, Joseph! <laughs> it's a miracle! <laughs> uh, so we actually are recording this sort of in uh, the, the holiday season. It's currently 13 days away from Christmas. Mm, um, don't remind me. <laughs> well, I don't know when this episode will come out, but likely uh, not during the holiday season. Um, so this may seem a bit anachronistic to you guys, but... I, I hope that at least some of our um, the appropriateness of the time period kind of bleeds into how we cover this uh, this movie. So, Joseph, are you a fan of Christmas movies? <clears throat> How's this? I am a fan of movies. Okay, I am. That's a good start. Yes. I like. <laughs> Movies. Halfway I, there. I like them. We, you, we're so close. And yet, as it turns out, um, I don't like Christmas. Ah. I really don't like Christmas, which is part of why I insisted that we do this episode before the end of 2021, at least recording it, so that my unbridled rage could be transmitted to you via audio. Um, <laughs> this is a sticking point in, in every member of my family who all love Christmas, including my partner, who I love deeply with all my heart. But this is probably like the single biggest rift in my household is like she lives for Christmas and I fucking hate it. I can't stand it. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so hard. This this month just gives me anxiety hives. I'm bad at buying gifts. I'm bad at keeping okay. track of who I've bought gifts for and when. The weird like mutual economy of like what what gift is worth more and was that an appropriate amount is weird to me. Also, I'm now an uncle, including an uncle of stepkids. So I, I've never had the ramp up of like getting to know them as like young kids i've just d dove into like puberty for like three of like my step nieces and nephews and mm -hmm. so like i've got to try to be the cool uncle and it's really hard <laughs> i don't know what the kids are into these days except now i've got to be it's it, right. like do that on top of your job that is a job unto itself but plenty of people's jobs is literally paying attention to what the kids are into you I, know i know so it's it's so fucking hard. Um, none of these kids like metalheads, and only one of them likes anime. So I'm like, everything's so out of pocket. Um, <laughs> it's so hard. 
fuck the holidays. I, I actually feel you on a lot of that. Uh, I, I also get, I'm a bit of a, like the, the stress of figuring out like what the appropriate thing to get people and the, uh, yeah, the sort of transactional nature of like feeling pressure. If you didn't get someone something, but they got you something. And the problem is like, there's not a period of time in which you can rectify this discrepancy. No. It all comes down. It's all down to one day right. <laughs> where you have to have gotten it completely right. And that to me is, uh, too much. If you ask me, uh, too much, too, too much pressure to put on 24 hours. Also, I mean, I don't know. It's, it feels kind of rote to complain about this kind of stuff, but absolutely. This is the worst time of year to go shopping for anything, Christmas gifts or not, because you have to be subjected to a lot of the worst music that's ever been recorded. If I'm just going to be frank with you. Uh, okay. This, this isn't even a shot at Mariah Carey. I like the Mariah Carey song well enough. I put that in the upper tier. It absolutely is. But there, like the grocery store that I usually go to had like the other day had absolutely the single worst song I've ever heard. This like incredibly didactic maudlin this seems maybe redundant, but like Christian Christmas song where, where the song was explaining like why people celebrate Christmas on a religious level. And it's like, buddy, I get it. Like you don't need to spell it out in the song. Like who is this for? It's, it's funny, but weird way. I, I kind of feel that's what Tokyo Godfathers is doing, except it's someone who isn't a Christian trying to explain to me who is raised Catholic, why Christians like Christmas. And I'm like, first of all, I get it. <laughs> Second of all, they don't. But before I get into that, I just want to let me just rank one thing. I just got to say one thing because this is a tangent, but we're here already. Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is the second best Christmas song of all time. The best Christmas song of all time is, in fact, Play Is Ball by Outkast. That's will, an interesting take. I will okay. die on this hill. Oh, could you exp- – I, I have not listened to that one recently enough to know why it's, – it it's a Christmas song. It is that? a Christmas song. It you can look this down up. for me. The play is ball is or was, I don't know if they still do it, was a pimped out car enthusiast event in Atlanta that is held in the holiday sis- like season, if I'm remembering this correctly. And huh. it is, I don't remember what the Christmas song is because again, in case you missed it in the past 10 minutes, I fucking hate Christmas. Um, <laughs> but the, the melody and sample that like is the backbone spine of that song, wow, that was redundant, the backbone spine. Um, here's, I got you for the holidays, Ian, a tautology. Um, <laughs> well, I gave you one already. So this is, we're already on equal footing. So sure. I, this is why you know me so well. Um, <laughs> so thoughtful. Yeah. So that's, it's a Christmas song that anchors the backbone of that, of, of that song. And it was intended to be like a holiday single. And I think it is like the, the most enduring specific song off the first outcast album maybe this is a cold take but the first four or five outcast albums are like god tier hip-hop i think i sound really white when i say that i bet yeah well that what that means is that it's not a hot take because if if you if they're enshrined enough that like white music nerds will also say that that means it is now a cold take to say that it's great right right it's like it's like the canonical even white dude's nerds like it like rap canon is those four records the first wu-tang record the first nas record and mm-hmm. i don't know paid in full eric b and rakim i would say even that's a bit more um 
like deep cutish. Like you're forgetting, of course, Kanye West, who is like the the go to like you know, Pitchfork sure. gave that right. my, like my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, which I've always thought of as sort of a Christmas record, as or at least like a fourth quarter end of the year winter kind of album. Um gave that they gave that a 10. Like I don't know how much more we we've gotten really far afield here. Um it's because we're trying to, to avoid own- talking about Tokyo Godfathers. <laughs> You're trying to avoid talking about Tokyo Godfather. <laughs> Not consciously. So I, I will repeat my uh, my original question. Do you like Christmas movies? I'm trying to avoid. No. no. In, in the abstract, no. In general, no. In specific, a few. Mm-hmm. I know you hate hearing this, but I, again, I feel like this is an, an, an Arctic cold take. Die Hard is a good movie and is a Christmas movie. Um, Die Hard is a good movie that does take place on Christmas. It yes. Is, it is about reuniting a family. It is very Christmassy. Uh-huh. Okay. There's a man that falls down from a high place. Hans Gruber. Oh, I see. So that's him going down the chimney. Yes. I, I had to, it took me a second to put that together. Um, the gift is Alan Rickman's, like, mutilated corpse. That's the gift. <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah, I, I, I've just like, I think that a lot of people that's like their one clever opinion is that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. And so I, I I just think like the, that, that particular gift has been unwrapped enough times. It's been regifted. Regifted. That has been a, a, the white elephant, uh, Christmas take for for long enough, and I don't think we need to sure. to bring it back every every year. Can I know, give you my Black cold. Swan Christmas take? Go for it. I mean, I feel like we already talked about Black Swan enough in the Perfect Blue <laughs> episode, but feel free. <laughs> okay, here's my actual favorite Christmas movie, and I think this is even more defensible as a Christmas movie is the first Gremlins. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. That movie's a blast. <laughs> Including where she's like, yeah, my dad got stuffed into a chimney drunk and died. <laughs> well, that that I think takes us closer to the particular tone of Tokyo Godfathers at the very least, which is right. It's a Christmas movie. It's family friendly, supposedly. And like people get stabbed. Homeless people get beaten in the streets. There's like a lot of, uh, you know, trauma around getting misgendered in this film. It's like it is a very heady adult version of a family-friendly Christmas movie. It yeah. is by far the weirdest movie in Satoshi Kon's uh, filmography in that it has like almost next to nothing to do with his other movies stylistically. I don't know. Like, how do you feel about this movie in particular, given your uh, dislike of Christmas movies at large? Sure. Here's my thesis statement on this movie, and this is why I brought Gremlins up. This movie, to me, is Satoshi Kon trying to do, like, a Spielberg in the 80s movie. Like, he's aiming for the Amblin entertainment, like, family glow. And his his way of doing it, he's like, it's going to be about a family and a baby. There's going to be, like, overt gags, but also, like, hijinks and chase sequences. That's what he's, like, going for. You know, but it's like his only skeleton for like what that would look like was gremlins. And the thing he took away from gremlins is the, oh, like horrible things in people's past. That's like the nature of Christmas. (laughs) And I'm like, you're right, actually. But that is not how you break out in America. (laughs) 
Right. Yeah. We mentioned last time that Millennium Actress had somewhat of a, a decreased response uh, compared to Perfect Blue. Uh, and from what I gathered, this movie was basically dead on arrival in the States. I'm yeah. not sure how well it did in Japan, but like this is one that had made like zero impact on uh, on this side of the Pacific. Sure. Yeah, I, I think this is sort of like the canonical like r- rough point in his career, which is a mm. shame because you know what? On a stylistic level, this is a gorgeous fucking movie. Like, oh, yeah. It's great to look at. It picks up basically where Millennium Actress left off on a visual level, not stylistically in terms of the like insane editing and the, you know, sort of meta textual uh you know, it's it's a movie that is animated but could be done in live action, I think, fairly convincingly in a way that none of Cone's other movies could. Uh, like, it doesn't really do the same kind of, like, you know, match cuts within match cuts and all of that kind of stuff that we've pointed out as being, like, Cone's particular stylistic, you know, flavor. But it is a gorgeously animated movie. In in fact, I'd say in part, like the reason that it feels like it could be done in live action is because it is so well animated. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it, so here's an interesting thing. And I was going to bring this up last time when we were talking about uh, millennium actress and didn't, but I think this goes, uh, this goes here. Um, I guess that in, when you're making movies, snow is an is an especially difficult thing to do mm-hmm. as a visual effect. One because it's almost impossible to like get it naturally. It's not like rain where we can just like hang 50 sprinklers over your head and it's like it's raining cuz we're actually dumping water on you, right? right um right. you can't do that with snow. And so snow is like much easier to do in in animation. Right. Although you also mentioned last time that animating snow is also difficult it's, like getting it's a lot of detail work to do it's a lot of detail work to do this was interesting that i found out though while making this movie it almost never snows in in tokyo mm, mm-hmm. it, like once a decade is about when they have like snow sticking on the ground i live in seattle washington where it's also like supposed to never snow but realistically it snows like once a year uh-huh. right so tokyo gets even less snow than us and and so i guess if you're if you're if you know that going into it there's something in the movie already where you're watching you're like ah snow on tokyo tower it's already a miracle mm-hmm. you, you know it's sort of supposed to right. have that magical realist glow to it yes i'm kind of into that yeah i i that's actually one of the things that i think is most interesting about this movie because it's never like openly stated and there's actually like less religious stuff in this movie than you would necessarily think but all of the religious elements are kind of like hovering just under the 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 surface of the text if that makes sense like so much of this movie is driven by like uh coincidence and happenstance um and it comes down to even like a lot of the gags are things that it's like well it's so funny that we would happen across like this exact person who has this exact connection to right. You know, the mystery that we're trying to solve or even like very early on, like one of the, the earliest shots, uh, I think it's like right before the opening credits. uh, There's this great shot where one in the background, there's a convenience store or like a, a a video store that has posters up for perfect blue and millennium actress in it, which is like a call on you sneaky devil. Um, Not even that sneaky, but okay. Like, 
Hana is carrying Kyoko, turns to face the camera to like talk to the other two uh, main characters who I guess we'll just call them the godfathers throughout for uh, for ease of conversation. Sure. Um, and a bicycle or like a motorcycle zips by behind her and then crashes right like, just where she was about to step which of course is setting up for the a similar thing with the, the ambulance crashing through the convenience store later in the movie but like there's constantly this sense of like is it fate or is it coincidence and right the fact that the movie the the final like big action moment is this you know deus ex machina essentially of the wind rushing in to save hana from falling it's a much more like it never goes so far as to say like God is real. It always has the door open. And I think that's like a very tasteful way of including a religious theme without it being like the forefront of the movie. I think you're right. And I do like that approach. I mean, it, but at the same time, like part of my issue with this movie is like, and I, th I think maybe this is sort of part of the worldview that Khan is trying to present, right? Like mm -hmm. this is in a lot of ways, his most optimistic work even more mm -hmm. so the millennium actress. Right. And, and right. sort of like the optimism is he's like, he's like, great things happen. Miracles happen. They're so common. In fact, they're kind of a joke. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, I don't know. Like, first of all, it's wild. I tried so hard on the intro summarizing this movie. There's whole, there's whole B and C plots that I had to excise. It's wild that this is a movie where an ambulance nearly kills one of the main characters before they coincidentally need to go to the hospital for an unexplained separate reason. Right. And, and, and also there's another character that showed up previously in the movie and is never acknowledged to be like that part of that scene is not even talked about in the movie, but it's like, it's the same guy who, right like Hana fought at the bar. <laughs> right. And it, it's just there loops on loops on loops in, in mm -hmm. which is kind of fun. But at the same time, like it, the other thing is like in this film, and this is, I think how Khan interprets the Amblin glow that I was talking about earlier is, and I don't like critiquing films along this line, but every character has so much plot armor that it's kind of funny. Like by the yeah. end, it's, it's a joke. Like car crashes do nothing. Multiple people like should be dead in automobile and mice and motorcycle accidents, like many, many, many times in the mm -hmm. course of this film. Uh, and nothing happens to the point where they're like chasing Sachiko up the apartment building. Like, no, don't let her jump with the baby. And I'm like, no, let her. This posits a world where everyone is made of titanium. Like <laughs> the baby will live. Even right. if it impacts, even if it achieves terminal velocity and impacts the concrete, it'll just bounce. This is, this is to me like the, the problem of making a movie about that theme that I mentioned of like, like, is it coincidence or is it fate? Is that, you know, that nothing ultimately terrible will happen in the movie itself to the characters. Like, right. as you mentioned, oh, a bunch of really bad stuff has happened to these characters already. And they're in like pretty dire straits, all things considered, like they don't live good lives, but the, the fact that the movie is repeatedly built on these sort of like minor miracles that add up to the major, uh, a base, essentially a major miracle of returning this child to her parents does kind of suck the, like the, the air out of the dramatic tension. Uh, if that makes sense, like it's, there's, 
it becomes difficult to continue to actually work yourself up to get worried because the movie is so repeatedly telling you like things will work out miraculously just when you think that they won't, you know, that's the, the rhythm of the film is things don't work out, but from the ashes of that, something new happens that leads the characters forward. And it just kind of becomes a bit repetitive to, to a certain extent. Sure. I mean, if, okay. I think it's time to start getting, getting toward the other thing that bugs me about Tokyo Godfathers. Yeah, we, we do have to talk about it. it. I mean, it's huge. So if you like scroll through the reviews for this movie on Letterboxd, it has a good, it, 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 it's a, it's a well-liked film. About half of the negative reviews, though, will probably say something like, oh, coincidence is bad storytelling and this movie is all built on it. And I think that's like a, a, a really like disingenuous lens to view a film through mm-hmm. personally. So I disagree with those negative views, even though, as I've said, like that apparently everyone in this movie can survive a full on impact with a fucking car is ridiculous to me. However, you know, the other negative critiques seem to center around one of the Tokyo Godfathers, that being Hana, who is mm-hmm. to me actually like of the three, the most protagonistic of them. I think this movie is like about Hana, really, really, truly. And I, I understand that it was sort of like radical for, for Cohen to do a movie about homelessness and, and be like part of the lens through which I'm going to address homelessness in Japan is going to be through a, a trans woman. Mm-hmm. This movie does not, I don't think, treat Hana's transness very well at times, which is weird for me as a cis guy to like take issue with maybe, but I would counter, isn't that the future we want? Or like a cis guy can look at a movie made by another cis guy and say like, I don't think this is the most sensitive portrayal of, of trans people you could do, man. Yeah. I mean, before we did this episode, both of us tried to do some research and dig in and see, given that neither of us are trans, we we don't have that kind of like firsthand experience and firsthand ability to sort of take that project on, on those terms. Um, so I really wanted to see what other people thought about it. And it seemed, it seems like people kind of go either way about it. I think some people think that it's like a good character in the fact that it is in this like, you know, anime film that is by like an esteemed director is like a success unto itself. Uh, and a lot of people seem to really like Hannah's character. Other people get really turned off by, especially early in the film, there's a lot of uh, slurs that are used both in the dubs and the subs, the severity of which is kind of different depending on you know which dub and which sub you're watching. So all I can say is that I think Hannah is a very well-written character full stop. Whether or not that particular part of her life is explored fully in the film, difficult for me to say. But I, I could see the argument being made either way is kind of my attitude about it. Sure. I mean, it, it, there's probably a few things to, to like muddy this up that we ought to bring up. So just like, here's some facts. In Japanese, there are pronouns for humans that are like, there is no controversy about using them in the country ever because they've been used for since time immemorial well probably more memorial but like you know an accepted part of the language they're not gendered um you don't need mm-hmm. to in japanese address someone with it with a gender 
normally. It's actually, my understanding is like, it's sort of a little bit unusual to be like, why are you bringing up someone's gender presentation just in a casual conversation if it's not directly related to like another piece of like what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, in, in that sense, it's like, I, I'm not, I don't fluently speak Japanese and I don't know in the Japanese script if these issues are all the way there, right? My understanding is one of the words that they often use to describe Hana is drag queen is, is like uh-huh. the word that means a drag queen. And right. which in some senses is literally true because she is a performer at a drag bar, but in other cases it is not the appropriate thing to say. It is not the appropriate. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say most of the time, not Mm -hmm. whenever we're not like referring to Hana, like as like her, her career, her former career. Right. But I also understand this movie was made, you know, in the early two thousands, like, and I think it's worth saying, like thinking about like which characters say what, you know? Right. Right. Cause there are, you know, the fact that there is this whole like troop of other like drag Queens that Hana you know, hangs out with at one point in this movie and are, I think, broadly depicted uh, very sympathetically. You know, that says one thing, but like Gin using slurs early on in the movie and the sort of contentious relationship that he has with Hana, uh, that's another thing, you know? Yeah. Even though it is, it, correct me if I'm wrong, in your reading of this film, it is strongly implied that he and Hana have like a sexual relationship. I don't know if it's ever Not strong. made out. I, I think that they are... They're certainly like life partners in a sense. Sure. Um, but I never got the sense that it was like overtly a sexual thing. But maybe here's, that's just. Here's where I'm getting that from. In the version of the film, and I'm about to use, this is the words of the subtitle, not mine. Okay. Mm-hmm. In, in the words of the version of the film that I saw, which is the one that you can rent on Amazon as I'm recording this. He refers to himself after talking about his, him cohabitating with Hana for a long time as quote, a homo quote, unquote, mm-hmm. which is misgendering Hana. But my, my interpretation of that is him saying that, that those two have like that have like a romantic relationship at least. Um, huh. Maybe that's a bad read on my part, but it is worth noting that like the original dub script of this film is, is like, I think loathed. And now there is a new version that has gone out of its way to clean up specifically the problems that I'm having here with it. Yes. Um, yeah. And I haven't had a chance to see it. Right. I, from what I understand in the new dubbed version, Hana is voiced by a trans woman. So that is at least some evidence of an attempt to do right by the representation of the character, which is, you know, I, I again, like I, I don't want to say like whether or not, every person should feel the same way about this character and her portrayal. But just to say that there are, there's a multitude of, uh, of opinions out there and that some of them, I, I understand either way how people feel like I, I, it's not my place to say how other people should feel about this kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm also not trying to anyone who's like listening to this, who's, who's seen the, the film and has like a differing take. I, I get that. Mm-hmm. You, you know, there is there is a quote from from Khan that is sort of tough, though. That sure. Is, that yeah. is tough for me. He he did have a quote 
where he said um, in his in the book, The Illusionist, he says, quote, I had a lot of concern that some people such as gay people might get angry with me or people might lay claims on me because of how I depict the homeless. I really worried about it. There was no model for Hana. I did not create him. This is this is, again, the, the translation in the book. Mm-hmm. Right. I did not create him by researching the gay community. The story needed somebody like uh, I hate saying him. And by creating him, I enhanced the story. There is no other explanation to give. So like that, whether or not like that translation of of like the gendered pronouns in that quote is good. Khan saying that he did not do any research to create the character. I, I think that lends some weight to me being like, I feel kind of weird about mm-hmm. it. Bad move to admit that you did not do research, probably, um, and bad move to not do research to begin with. Like, I don't know, do your due diligence, go to a drag show, <laughs> like do something more than just like wing it. Not a great look from Cohn, for sure. Which is a shame because it's obvious that Cohn loves this character. Hana might be one of the most well animated characters I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Like, even when she's in like, far shot and she, they're just like walking through the snow. She has her little like scarf that she wears sort of like a, a, a um, I don't know, like a boa almost. And she yeah. sometimes like will walk, you know, in a direct line and sometimes will put a little like hip sachet into it when in the dialogue, she's feeling feisty yes. and it just yeah, looks yeah, yeah. great. It's, it's really like from a technical perspective, the portrayal of her is, is adoring. And, mm-hmm. and that makes it harder. That's what makes it harder. It's like if you if you put this much passion into the 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 portrayal visually of this character, why would you not do the same thing in the script? I that this is probably the single the one creative decision Cohen has made that bugs me the most. Well, do you have any like specific things in the script beyond for like the use of the slurs that we talked about that like bugs you about Hannah's portrayal. Um, she's like the butt of a, of jokes. Like often, mm-hmm. like she often, like her transness is the punchline. Right. Right. Okay. And, but sometimes she's making the jokes about herself and I'm all right with her being self-effacing. Like early on, she makes sort of like a joke. Like she's like, if the Virgin Mary could get pregnant, why not me? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm like, that's, I'm okay with the character making that joke about herself. I think that's fine. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but that, that doesn't like raise my eyebrow. Right. But then later, like there's a scene where like, they're just like walking through a subway and Hannah's rocking Kyoko, rocking the baby, just walking along. And you see someone going down the escalator, seeing what's happening and says, wow, miracles do happen. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a callback to the same joke. And like, I understand why you would make that joke, but but why do you, I understand that it's a callback and that like from a certain perspective, that's kind of funny. I don't necessarily think it's funny. Why does that right. joke even need to be there? Just cut earlier. You're Satoshi Khan. You cut, <laughs> you cut at random. Yeah. Yeah. That, that particular line also jumped out to me as being like very conspicuous because it is such, it's not a, it's not a line of dialogue that is even said to the characters themselves. It is like like Rob Schneider or something sticking right. his head out and like cracking a joke. And it, right. it does feel uh, cheap, you know, in a way that I, I would say even some of the other cases of like Gein and Hannah having a conversation feel more like lived in and 
tell us something more than just the punchline. Um, so yeah, I, that one is, that one's no good. I would cut that if I, if I had, you know, the scissors myself. And and that doesn't seem like one that like redubbing it's going to fix. Yeah. You like, can't it, fix that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I'm better with Gin doing it because Gin's kind of a dick. And like yeah. this, that's his character. A, yeah. And that's their particular relationship is like sort of inherently combative, you know? Right. They have a banter. I get that. There's healthy couples that do that, mm-hmm. it, you know? Do we want to talk about, maybe we should use this opportunity to talk about the other two uh, Godfathers. Do you like, do you want to go further into Gein's character? Cause I do think the interesting thing that sort of separates this one from the previous two Cone movies is that it is more of like a three hander in some ways. Like the characters are often splitting up and having their own side stories and are there. I, I think you can make the case that Hana is the main character. I think you could also make the case that Miyuki is the main character because she's the one that goes through an actual arc from beginning to end and like changes over the course of the film. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the case for all three. I think it's worth talking about each of them individually, perhaps. I think so too. I I guess there's, there's two other things that I just want to get out of the way with, with Hana, I think. Sure. Going back to the animation for a second, like the, the key scene in this film is the scene where Hana like finally loses her patience with Gein in the hospital. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um that scene was animated by Shinji Otsuka. Part like a key part of Cone wanting to do this film was mm-hmm. to showcase Otsuka as an animator. And the the scene of Hana yelling in 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 Cone's storyboards cuz he makes very uh intricate storyboards for all of his films before they even begin animating. Right. Um, Which makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, this scene of Hana yelling and just her face distorting 20 pages long. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> and it's all there. It's like on this, it's like syllable by syllable. This is where the jaw is going to start moving. And I'm right. like, this is amazing to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's an important thing to bring up is that we've previously talked about the sort of realism of Cone's characters in the first two movies. That's not really the style in this one the characters all all three of the main characters get like a chance to be sort of very cartoonish looking and very like super real in a lot of cases hana obviously has the most like pronounced version of that but i think all three characters have their moments where they appear slightly more ridiculous and maybe more conventionally anime uh which lends to this this movie's more um goofy tone i would say yeah it's definitely goofy. Although, like, it, it is interesting to try and, like, see this film as, like, part of an arc with Perfect Blue Millennium Actress. And in that, I think Hana is the, of, of those triptych of, of women leads. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, Hana I is sort that. of the third, you know? Right. And in that, she does get, I think, the, the best, like, dramatic scene, too. And and that is her in Angel Tower, the drag bar, right? Talking to mo- mother, mom. You know the, yeah. that character, the bartender, never gets uh, a name. A name, yeah. But she gets her her backstory, and it's that she's misgendered and then beat the crap out of the patron who misgendered her. Right, and that is dark, and that is a mood. But it, they do render it in sort of a tragic comic way yeah and i i think that little bit is probably my favorite part of the film interesting yeah 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 i well i like that all three of the characters have their own sort of like origin story reveal of course like gins changes over time he's like 
<laughs> he's kind of a mess, this guy. Like, he's an alcoholic, he's a gambler, and he is clearly, like, very ashamed of his past, so he makes up a version of his past that, like, is uh, more amenable to his current state. Like, it, it's more... He's yeah, interesting thing. Like he, you know, he has this like lie about him being a professional bicycle racer. Uh it turns out he just like co-owned a bike shop with his wife and was just a gambling addict. Yeah. So I think he it, his the depiction of like addiction and like gambling addiction and stuff, it feels pretty real to me. Like yeah. all all of the elements of his character track for me and I think having a character that is like uh, fundamentally untrustworthy that gradually becomes uh, like secure in himself and in his relationships enough to tell the truth. Uh, that's a, it's an interesting arc. And I think it's, it's a cool one that is, you know, not, not the same thing as the kind of stories that we saw in the first two movies. Uh, he's, he's not, he's kind of the least interesting of the three to me. Uh, I, I think, what do you think of him? Cantankerous old guy. Mm-hmm. you know cantankerous middle-aged guy his arc is not so much i think about like his changing it's about like discovering the truth of who he is which like says something right. about the nature of his masculinity right and I, I i like con trying to explore that he's also of of the three he is the funniest in some ways because mm-hmm. like though i've said some like though I've said some rotten things about things that he says early in the film, he's got some pretty good one-liners usually playing off of Hana, you know, like, like right. Hana's like, Hana's like, you said you were a pro bicycler. He's like, I was at the track every day. I'm like, that's funny. More like that. Again, Hana's at the hospital. She like, she like recovers, yells at him, storms on. He's like, someone's feeling better. That's funny. I'm like, I, I right. like him playing, forgive this straight man. Um, I, I like that character is that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, he's around for some of the more cone esque stuff in this film as well. The sequence of him finding the older man lying on the ground and like wearing the exact same clothes that he's wearing and with the same luggage is one of the more like heightened sort of super real yeah. Like, is this actually what's happening or is he just imagining it kind of moments that lines up with, say, you know, Mima seeing multiple versions of herself throughout Perfect Blue? Yes. And I think we're supposed to absolutely see that older man as, you know, Gin's potential future and him coming across and taking care of that guy, admittedly, while still giving him, you know, alcohol as he's dying is, I think, meant to be this emotional turning point in the film and it for that character in uh in particular it also serves as a sort of a, a preview of what's to come in paranoia agent because that particular old man is a lot like the uh the older homeless people in paranoia agent which we'll talk about when we talk about that movie and also we get some like what the fuck is wrong with the youth moments yeah. with that Yes, his his arc is sort of we'll get there when we get there. But like, while I love Paranoia Agent, especially more on this rewatch, I, I do see it a little bit as like Con playing the hits sort of. Sure. Or yeah. maybe this movie is is him kind of d- d- doing the demo reel 
for what's going to yeah. become part of Paranoia Agent with Gin's storyline in particular, right? Yeah, um, I think this movie is actually better upon rewatch after you watch Paranoia Agent. Yes, uh, in some I agree ways. with that. In the same way that like Blue Velvet is more interesting after you watch Twin Peaks. Correct. To some extent. Oh, you got Lynch in there. <laughs> if, you're, if you're playing bingo at home, you know. <laughs> doing what he'd there do best. Um, <laughs> yeah, that scene where, the, where the, the teenagers or like the young adults like who are like. College age kids. College age kids. Yeah. yeah. It, now, now I look at them and I just seem like, oh, these are proud boys from Japan. Oh, 100%. I got the exact same vibe right. watching it. I think even the fact that they're like their haircuts are like specifically yuppie-ish in a way. Right. You know, like the the lead guy who beats the crap out of Gein looks just like so just straight out of like, ugh, you just see the boat shoes on him before you even see his feet. You know what I mean? He is Kid Kniff from Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> and I apologize for making an Eminem joke in, in, in an episode where I have problems with like the homophobia in the story, but I <laughs> fuck you kid Kniff. Yeah. I, I think that that it's, it's a, it's a crucial part of the story that like the main characters across the board are these sort of like marginalized people in Tokyo. You have, of course, the three central homeless characters, as well as the other members of the homeless community that they interact with, which I think is like a very cool little thing on the the outskirts of this movie. You have the the Yakuza, of course, who, you know, are obviously in a much better financial situation, but are still sort of, you know, it's the seedy underbelly of the city. And then you also have like an immigrant community living in Tokyo as well, which that was like the biggest surprise to me. Uh, upon yeah. the first time that I watched this movie. I do have feels about like seeing a, a, a Latino, two Latino people in mm-hmm. a, an animated, a, a Japanese animated film. Like that, that did kind of mean something to me, even though like, I, I think the, the, the assassin is, is kind of like a, a weird portrayal. Are, are they supposed to be Cuban? I'm not entirely sure. It's not made perfectly obvious to me. It's probably something that's hidden in the background. Yeah, it seems that is the most underbaked part of the movie, the assassination plot. Right. I also will admit that like I, because I don't speak Spanish, I'm sure that there's stuff that I'm missing about the particular context of like the interesting to me is I understand enough to be like, he's asking something about like milk for the baby and Miyuki interprets it as a threat because she doesn't speak Spanish. I thought that was pretty funny that um, she responds in English. Right. I act, I don't know if that's a bad joke, but I, I did giggle. She's like, thank you very much. I'm like, okay. They right. can't tell the difference between Spanish and English or more that it's just like defaulting to, you know, one other language that potentially maybe could be like a, a common uh, shared ground. Right. Um, I love the scene of like the, uh, the, the woman, the, the mother of the, uh, I, I, what is it like specifically the assassin's wife? I, I couldn't pick that up. They don't, I, it's hard for me to tell. I'm going to go yeah. with wife, girlfriend, mm-hmm. mother of his child. We presume. Right. You know, because there, there is, this wasn't in the summary, but you know, there is the little, the little Latino, Latina baby next yeah. to Kyoko and they're both crying. The most lovingly depicted nipples in an animated film I've ever seen, <laughs> uh, which is right. a little off-putting to me, but 
whatever. We've got a lot of breast feeding going on in that scene. But right. like the Miyuki relating to her sequence is legitimately, I think, pretty heartwarming. Yeah, very charming. Their their attempts to understand each other despite this language barrier is something that like I've never seen in any other anime. That's that seems specifically very uh, unique to this movie. And one thing that I really like is so much of this movie is like they're all everyone has like these framed pictures of family. Yeah. All over this film. You know, like everyone's got some memento of their family or like some framed pictures of like happier times hanging in the background of their living spaces. Uh, that's a that's a cool motif. I like that. And it also does lend to like stuff like that lends a few more like cone ish moments like early on when they first find Kyoko and they're back in their like makeshift home and Hana is like backdropped by this like tropical setting yeah and it kind of allows for it to look like she's just at the beach or something right it's i i really like stuff like that being able to sort of play with foregrounds and backgrounds and having all of these like pictures of better times and stuff it's it's a cool cool little visual motif i enjoy that the visual motif is also spielbergy because i interpreted that as a direct reference to jeff goldblum's reveal in the lost world a not good Spielberg movie, but I actually, I have not seen that one. So I, I, I cannot comment. I've only seen the first Jurassic park. Oh, well you can watch the first five minutes because it's the best smash cut in film history. And it's in the first five minutes of the lost world. Um, gotcha. <laughs> it's, it's actually a decent gag. Um, I liked them doing that with Hana. Yeah. Well, and also it's, it's interesting that like it, the photos in, in the background, are, like tacked to the outside of the shack. Those are like, they're like detective clues. Right. Sure. Those, the, yeah. those are the Scooby-Doo clues. Those are the, the keys to them, like revealing the true nature of what it means to, to believe in Christmas. What's the spirit of Christmas? Right. I God, so fucking trite. Okay. <laughs> I do want to point out one other um, very conish thing. You mentioned this in your notes and I, I agree is that Miy- uh, Miyuki gets like the, the only true dream sequence flashback where she it's revealed you know what happened when she stabbed her dad you know a cab um and yeah. then it's shown that like this dream then devolves into reality slowly and she pictures ahana and gin as her uh you know as her parents and the the cat turns into the baby and all that all that feels like very like only cone would do that kind of stuff yeah the only the only parts that like feel cone to me are that sequence and there is like a match cut a little match cut triptych of like water dripping and then blood dripping and then and then and it's the match cut that leads you into that sequence Mm -hmm. although that that dream is a little nail on head right because it's like why is my dad geen why is my mom hana right and i'm like i yeah i get it it's you're (laughs) yes you're a baby, family we understand we baby jesus it's yes it's literally every single christmas story in one i'm realizing because Gein has the three ghosts of christmas he's the present he sees the past in the future mm-hmm. right and he also encounters the old man dying who's santa claus right <laughs> right very true except yeah, gives them the present of the the lottery ticket and right. the way to find the parents totally correct yeah mm-hmm. and of course kyoko is the wee baby jesus mm-hmm. let me think i feel like i was gonna go was there anything else i wanted to talk about uh, i didn't mean to derail you 
No, it's fine. I, I feel like I derailed you. Uh, one, oh, one other paranoia agent related thing is that when they do find the house that's been torn down, one, I, I love the the Miyuki shot with all of the cats behind her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very cute. The neighbors that they talk to that they get all of the gossip about Kyoko's parents of supposed parents yeah. from, then they also show up again in Paranoia Agent. Uh, so I think you can reasonably place this movie into the same universe as Paranoia Agent. And in some ways, that same um, sort of dualism question of like, perfect blue and millennium actress being the, the negative and positive sides of, uh, of fame. Right. You can maybe look at uh, Tokyo Godfathers and paranoia agent as the positive and negative sides of belief as in, <laughs> okay, this movie is like, a, okay. a movie about like the, a belief in a higher power or belief in fate or the belief in the possibility of miracles. Right. And, paranoia agent is maybe what happens if you believe in something that you shouldn't believe in if you know what i mean i do know what you mean it's i don't i don't want to spoil paranoia agent but they also do have the thing where like randomly there is a very like is it intentional or is it just in everyone's headsness for 90 percent of it and then at the very end you do you do get like oh here's a clearly supernatural occurrence Mm -hmm. in in public in front of everybody (laughs) that we will not bring up ever again we will just drop it. We will like, no one will acknowledge that one thing. Right. Yeah. There you go. That's, I like that interpretation. Although I, I the tough thing is, is I hold perfect blue and, and millennium actress in such high regard. And yeah. I also hold paranoia agent in, in very high regard. And I, I can't say the same about Tokyo Godfathers so, so, so much, even though there's a lot to love about it. Right. Yeah. It, I feel like the things I love about it are all in the details are all like yes. little sequences yeah, yeah, yeah. and but it's less than the, the sum of its parts, right? Cause you put the parts together and I get, we Christmas in a society. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Right. Yeah. There's a few more de- small detail things that I like Gin becoming like his big action hero moment after previously in the movie saying, I'm no action hero, all being dependent on him being able to ride a bike very well. Yes, uh, it's and a, he even has it's very tidy. This this is the thing: is the movie is extremely tidy, uh, and yes. it's almost it's almost overwritten. Which, we, but we'll we'll get to that. <laughs> he has like the the non heroic version of the Akira bike slide, mm-hmm. where he he flies past them and does the the bike slide and then collapses. <laughs> this thing is adorable. It's so funny. <laughs> I. I that's got to be a joke, right? Like, like that's got to be like Cohen being like, "Yeah, the Akira guy worked with him, <laughs> right?" <laughs> um, Otsuka, by the way, actually did the Tetsuo mutation scene in Akira, mm. so it is funny to think of like Hana's face blowing up in the frame as like a, a callback to that. Sure, yeah, yeah. Now we're gonna have to do it. We're gonna have to do an Akira bonus episode. Um, uh, mm, yeah, we'll we'll see. If um, we don't cut that. Um, <laughs> Oh, there's another, um, by the way, there's another Gamera uh, reference. No, it's this one is a, I just need that in. It's been a minute. <laughs> it's, this is a reference to princess Mononoke, but Hana, the character was inspired directly by Akihiro Miwa, who is a famous Japanese, uh, I guess, drag persona, mm-hmm. right? Akihiro Miwa plays the, the wolf God. 
in Princess Mononoke. That oh, they, weird. They fucked huh. it up so much in America that they had to like have like a man. I think it's it's like they they famously had like a, a male presenting person do the voice and they huh. mix up. They're like, no, 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 it's a, it's a woman. It's a female. It's a goddess sort of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Um, if we ever if we ever do the Ghibli films. There'll be a lot about that particular character from me. The best sure. and worst part of Princess Mononoke. Anyway, um, I'm tangenting again. Yes. Well, another you you did remind me that this movie is in part based off of a story that also inspired a very different movie called uh, Three Godfathers, which is also a Christmas movie, but it's by John Ford and has John Wayne in it. So you know what that means. It's a Western. Oh, my God. Very interesting. Like, I've been thinking a lot about like how, you know, people kind of compare like the glut of superhero movies to the period of time when Westerns just dominated American filmmaking. And it's like, well, we never superhero movies are not so dominant that you can just throw a Christmas movie into them. You know, Westerns were so dominant that you could make a Western Christmas movie. (laughs) you like, say that but are you gonna you bring up iron man three iron man three <laughs> yeah because shane i love black shane deserves black. some mentioned here <laughs> this is yes this is a movie that that like if they did an american version it would shane be shane black should do it shane shane black and chris columbus somehow getting together that's the vibe <laughs> and that yeah, those yeah. two don't work together is why the, the tone of this is so fucking bizarre right mm. i've never seen that ford movie I need to watch more Ford just because I love John Carpenter so much. I know he's John Carpenter's like guy. Mm-hmm. I've only seen a few others of the searchers was obviously like the famous one. Uh, that's a good, you know, I'm getting my booster shot pretty soon. And so that's a good day long movie that I might park myself in front of and, and rewatch. Uh, seems like film. Yeah. Um, Three Godfathers is pretty good. It, if you don't like the treacliness of this movie, you'll have some serious problems with the final act of, of Three Godfathers. The interesting thing that's different is that, so the, the difference is that it's these three criminals that ride into a town in Arizona. They rob the bank and then try to escape out in the desert. There's a bit of cat and mouse, and they end up finding a baby out in the desert basically halfway through the movie. And then the arc of redemption is them then bringing the baby back into town. And that's sort of like the, it's more of a like redemption Christmas arc than it is like a finding your family Christmas movie. I do Uh, like that pitch. That's a good pitch for a film. Although now I'm realizing, first of all, it has very little to do with this. And second of all, I'm like, is this cone trying to get a best adapted screenplay award? (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, I'm well we, maybe we should talk about the the screenplayness of this. Uh because this is the first movie of his that I feel like is more of a script than it is an editing showcase. Like you probably noticed that the recap is much more in depth compared to the first two that uh that we did for this season. And I think that's because this is a much more like plot heavy movie. It's much more of a script-based movie, which is why there are all these like repeating pieces of information and like parallels and you know tidy like knots drawn around all of the you know various strands of character development and whatnot and so this is this is a movie written by Cone and also uh Kieko Nobumoto who as of the time one out yeah we should 
you know, despite our, our criticisms perhaps of the over plottiness of this movie, uh, we should pay our respects to Kiko Nobumoto who recently passed away as the time of this recording. She also helped write a great deal of cowboy bebop. It sounded like you did a bit more research along that front. I was not familiar with that fact. Yes. So Keiko Nobumoto was one of the story composers for Mm -hmm. cowboy bebop. She doesn't have so many writing credits on cowboy bebop aside for, I, I like, I know that she did asteroid blues Okay. Which is not what I expected. Like I expected her to do, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the best Cowboy Bebop episodes probably is the Jupiter Jazz two-parter, which also has like a trans woman main character way, mm-hmm. way ahead of its time. So I presumed that, that Keiko was, would be the lead screenwriter of those episodes, but no. Um, after Cowboy Bebop, she created Wolf's Reign. Okay. Which is like another... I think like Paranoia Agent is in the was on Adult Swim forever, but now seems weirdly kind of forgotten list. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember really liking Wolf's Reign. She worked on, again, the scenario for the Kingdom Hearts games. Oh, wow. No way. Okay. Yeah. That's that's difficult work. So (laughs) that's off to her. A real one Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, She'd worked earlier with Cone on World Department Horror. Okay. The spooky movie he did with Katsuhiro Otomo. Um, and she also worked on something I've never seen, Macross Plus, which is mm-hmm. canonically like they say the best Macross. I'm a Luddite and I've only seen Robotech, but I fucking love Robotech. So there you go. That's this movie's weird connection to Hideki Anno, who was one of the animators on the original Macross. Well, there's also the other thing that this movie shares in common with Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is its heavy use of Beethoven's Ninth. Uh, Beethoven's Ninth comes up a bunch across this this movie, uh, and not just the Ode to Joy uh, section of it, but actually like large chunks of it appear in the background of when Gin is taking care of the older man. Uh, it's playing on the radio a few times. And then the final song that's playing over the credits is like a reggae version of Ode to Joy, which is just such a bizarre idea, but somehow they pull it off. It's really charming. And all the like the weird like buildings bouncing around in time is like, oh, that's like a strange little touch to end the movie. Perfectly weird for this quirky movie. Yeah, it's a it, it's the version of Beethoven's Ninth that would play in the Angel Tower karaoke bar. Yes, yeah, that's entirely right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> that's fun. I liked I liked that. Con moving from like this like hyper subjective style to trying to be something that's straightforward and really I think like pointedly socio-critical mm-hmm. is like in the abstract a cool idea. But I think you can tell in this script heaviness, it, it's a turn that doesn't quite catch, right? You know, all respect to Nobumoto, who my understanding is was brought in specifically to like juice Hana, the character. Mm-hmm. So and I think it's, you know, to her and Cone's credit that Hana actually comes across as well as Hana does, because like, even though I like I said that, like, Hana is the thing that like rubs me the worst about this film. Also, probably the, the most surprising success. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it so, could have gone so much worse than it did in this movie that like I was kind of dreading rewatching this because I was expecting something like 
significantly more dated and of its time in terms of uh, the depiction. I, I actually came away and maybe I'm being a bit um, apol- apologistic about the film because I was expecting something like much more uh, uh, politically incorrect than it ended up being. I think all things considered, it's much better than it could have been. I agree. I don't want to see a remake of this movie. No. Even though I think like a remake would be better received. Like the, yeah. that, that this film flopped so hard was honestly rude. Uh, but be that as it may, what we have is a fun, but pretty imperfect film. I'm not actually trying to wind up for a wrap up. I know it sounds that way, but it's, it's not true. It's just, we're at a weird point in Cone's career. Like doing yes. this arc has been like really great, but this is sort of his, his like, this is the downward spiral, but it's also a, laying the track for like something really amazing. Yeah. It's the dip that's necessary to start going back up the hill again. An orbital slingshot maneuver. <laughs> uh-huh. right? He's got, got to go around the dark side of the moon to pick up enough gravitational momentum to, to uh, go through the asteroid belt. Right. Is that how that works? Talk to me, Elon. Tell me. <laughs> Surely you must know. Of surely course. Elon, yeah, surely Elon Musk has things to say about homelessness in Tokyo. <laughs> well, I'm sure we can just add him on Twitter and find out. Um, it's funny, you said that you weren't leading up to a wrap up, but I'm not actually sure I have too much more to say about this movie. How about you? No. Yeah, I don't. I, it, it, I, it, it's fine. It's of the things we've watched for this podcast, this is my, the thing that makes me the second most aggravated. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess it's, do we count, um, jet alone as a separate thing or, Oh, sorry. Third most (laughs) aggravated. I would jet alone at the bottom. I'd say death and rebirth at the bottom, but death and rebirth doesn't aggravate me. It's just not good. Right. Right. Like I, I don't feel like it's offensive. Like it's just weird. It's mm-hmm. offensive in that it's a cash grab, right? So Jet Alone at the bottom, let me guess, uh Evangelion 2.0. Correct. And then this. Above it. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I, we're not and I guess like above that we've got to get to like magnet magma diver. Right? <laughs> well, I, I'm a mag, magma diver defender. You know this about me. I like that episode. Um, the the gulf in quality between Tokyo Godfathers and Magnum Diver is big to me. Interesting. Okay. I think most things above that are great. I like this movie. I think it's a good movie. I think it's got the the weird um, privilege and burden of being made by someone who made significantly better things than this movie. Um, and as you said in the last episode, this is like not the kind of thing that people that watch anime watch anime for. It's you know, uh, it's a Christmas movie. It's, it's just very different in tone than the kind of stuff we typically cover on this podcast. And so I'm kind of like charmed by its like uniqueness in Cone's body of work, but it is, I, I would not put this on except to rewatch it for this podcast, but I don't think that makes it a bad film. I agree. It is, it is like a project that has no target audience. Yeah. Right. And I think that goes to, there isn't a lot of detail on the production of this film out there, 
but I do know that it was being prepped even before Millennium Actress came out. So I think mm-hmm. this is still like cashing the check that that Perfect Blue wrote, right? Like this is still him as it's being made. It's still him riding on that high of I'm the director of Perfect Blue. Right. I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever <laughs> I want. I'm going to do my homelessness Christmas movie about hijinks. And I, I guess there was no one there to say like Satoshi. Maybe something else. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I can't think I can't imagine anyone else like pulling off this concept better. You know, I don't mm-hmm. I don't want uh, John Hughes making this movie. How's this? Tokyo Godfathers is a great title for something. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, when I first was like. I guess this is like 2010 when I, I was, you know, living with some some other people and I told my roommate at the time, like, oh, I'm going to watch this movie, Tokyo Godfathers tonight. It's like, oh, fuck, yeah, that sounds badass. And <laughs> I had it's to explain not, that it is not a movie about <laughs> the mob, but <laughs> even though it does feature the mob momentarily, it is not a movie about the mob. <laughs> oh, that is one thing. Something unexpected for Satoshi Kon. What a glowing portrayal of organized crime, though. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's like, the Yakuza are great. They're helpful. The mob boss will give you a ride to a wedding. Yeah. I d- actually, I do want to say that, that is, I laughed out loud this morning when I watched that. That particular scene is so funny to me. The, like the reveal of how the, the Yakuza boss got stuck under the car. Something about it is like Looney Tunes level funny to me. Right. Um, <laughs> he forgets to put the, he's got to get, he forgets to put the handbrake on and he's just slowly being run over by his car. And I'm like, is this the end of a fish called Wanda? Is that what you're going for? What is this? Totally bizarre. Like what a, what a strange choice, but yeah, it's like the, the Yakuza come off like, Pretty well, all all things considered. <laughs> so does the so does like the mysterious guy who's trying to kill one of them for unknown reasons. It's sort of like a rosy portrayal of everyone. Um, yeah, except for the yuppies that beat up the homeless. Like, yes, that's well, kind of the, this movie's so. point of view is like the underbelly of society is is better off in in a moral sense than the overbelly. Overbelly is that that's. What is the opposite of an underbelly? A backside? The joke there is that they're asses. <laughs> well, that's very true. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. I was trying to work out the anatomy before I got to the punchline. You know it's a funny joke because I had to explain it to you on air. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the butt of that joke because otherwise I was <laughs> no. going to miss it. <laughs> I didn't even realize that I was teeing you up for that. Um <laughs> Sure. I mean, it, it, it is sort of weird, though, I guess, also now that I'm thinking about it, this has bugged me before, but I didn't know how to vocalize it before. I guess the antagonist of the film is like a young woman with postpartum depression. Yeah, that is I, I will say that that is like. If there is a, a structural flaw, it's that her Sachiko is like not really a well drawn out character in the way that the primary three characters are and because so much of the the finale of the movie hinges on her particular psychosis it kind of feels a bit 
dramatically empty at the end, if you know what I mean. Right. And it does sort of cheerlead her going back into the arms of her gambling addict shithead husband who also we we papered over this but this is worth mentioning this is unique um slightly triggering for me which might be another part of the reason why i don't like this movie but also very weird um it's like very explicitly stated that sachiko's physically abusive to her husband yeah they really just like drop that and keep moving very very shocking line and and he's like no come back i want someone to be like Dude, bro, like, get bro, your shit together. You. Like, leave. Go get away. Get away yeah. from her. Yeah. First. She's kidnapping babies and shit. Like, I mean, it's not sensitive to her, but like, you need to like, you need to take care of you, my friend. Yes. Yeah. Look, I hate to say it, but go back to dating the other girls in the strip club. Jesus. Right. You could. De- <laughs> you can't do much worse than this in this particular case. You um, picked the worst bar girl somehow. <laughs> There you go. There's and there once again is me being like, here's we come back to my my issue with Satoshi Kong, right? As in general, though I though I do adore him. This is a movie that does everything it do does it can do to say to you, I am a thoughtful, empathetic human being. Mm-hmm. And then in the heart of the story, you can find something that to me is like very misanthropic. Like, yeah, that's the dad corpse in in the chimney in this movie is Sachiko (laughs) and her husband is I'm like, right. Whoa, this couple is fucked up. Mm -hmm. Deeply, truly fucked up. And and we're not going to address it at all. It just stinks. Well, the good news is that if you wanted a version of if you wanted something from Satoshi Kon where he does dive into particularly every character's individualized fucked up world. That is exactly what we're going to get in the next chunk of this season. Cause now it is time for paranoia agent, the TV series inside of this podcast about a filmography. <laughs> it, you know what? I'm liking doing these movies, but we've been doing movies for a while. Ian, I am excited to get back to like a couple episodes talking about a couple characters like Mm -hmm. i'm 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 into that and paranoia agent is i mean wow if there's like been a big takeaway for me in doing this series now admittedly as i'm saying this i've not rewatched paprika right Mm -hmm. and i remember like nothing yeah so i can't speak to that but if you if you exclude paprika from what i'm about to say this is true it has been an absolute fucking joy to revisit paranoia agent, which kind of missed me on mm-hmm. first watch and being like, Oh, this fucks. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Okay. Hell yeah. I'm, I'm really excited. I know that at the, in the very first episode of the season, I mentioned maybe being slightly more lukewarm on paranoia agent upon returning to it. But if you're coming in hot, then I'm excited to meet you there because there's a lot to dig into in this show. And I, I'm excited to, you know, I almost feel like it's funny, even though these episodes have been as long as the movies that they've been about. I do feel like because they're movies, we kind of are giving them somewhat of a shorter shrift in these podcast episodes. But we can dive really deep into an episode of television and uh, I think th- there's a lot of fun stuff that's going to come out once we do that with Paranoia Agent. So up next, we're going to watch the first two episodes of Paranoia Agent, 
and we're going to cover them in one episode, the same way that we did with Evangelion in the last season. So that's going to be the format going forward. Uh, so if you're following along, watch the first two episodes of Paranoia Agent, and we'll meet back with you on the next episode of this podcast. Christmas is over. It is time for a New Year's party. Break out the champagne and a busted up aluminum bat. We are going to get traumatic brain injuries together. I'm excited. Sweet dreams, everyone.